Hello, <laughs> welcome to the Double Double, episode seven. David, how are you? Doing great, Kelly, doing great. Good, love to hear it. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Five stars only. And we now have an email account, double 402 at gmail.com. So you guys can send any questions or feedback or things that you'd like us to discuss on the pod, and we'll we'll take it into consideration. Can't make any promises, but um, more likely than not, if the the audience wants it, we will deliver. We give the people what they want at, at the double-double. There's no doubt about it. So we're going to talk a little Bryce Harper later. You have some fire NFL combine takes, but we're going to start with some NBA talk as we do on the Double Double. It's a basketball-centric podcast. Got to stay true to our name. We're going to do a little exercise here today. We each came up with a couple guys who we feel are Hall of Famers, and we feel that that's not a universally held opinion. So, David, who's your first guy? Yeah, so my first guy, who I think is on that borderline of the Hall of Fame is Al Horford. He, for his career, is averaging about 14 points a game with eight rebounds and three assists. He's made five all-star teams, and he was a two-time NCAA champion at Florida when he was on co- in, in college with, with those back-to-back teams and with Joakim Noah and Corey Brewer. So obviously some of the cons for Horford is that obviously he's never made the finals before. Um He's scoring less than 15 points per game in his career, and he's only had five seasons where he's averaged 15 points or more per game. But I just feel like he's a guy who projects to keep playing for a lot more years and will keep putting up stats and numbers and be on good teams where where it's kind of like at the culmination of his career, he could have some Hall of Fame stats. I'm probably in agreement with you. I think he is a Hall of Famer, so I don't I – don't... I wouldn't say that's a fire take. I think it is a bit controversial. Some will probably side that he's not a Hall of Famer, but I, I tend to agree with you. The last thing I'll say about Horford is just that it seems like like the championship is kind of the, the thing that he's going to need the most to to fully win people over on the Hall of Fame candidacy because he was on those great Hawks teams, but they never got past the Eastern Conference Finals leading to LeBron. And he doesn't seem like this Boston team is going to win that win a championship anytime soon. And I think that it's kind of maybe someone will make a, not a Pau Gasol level trade, like he can have that type of impact, but a, but a trade where he leaves and maybe goes out to LeBron and the Lakers and helps them in their quest for a championship. Getting a little frisky there, Dave. I think Horford is a Hall of Famer, and in large part because it's the Basketball Hall of Fame. So he won two natties at Florida. So that's certainly going to help his case. So some of the guys who I was considering, I thought about Kemba Walker, although I think he's going to get in. I don't think that's all that controversial. Kevin Love I considered. I think he gets in. We That's an argument, but I don't think it's all that interesting. My first guy, he's had 13 years of 14 or more points. So that's not extraordinary, but he's very consistent. That's Jamal Crawford. So the trump card in his Hall of Fame candidacy case is that he has three 
six man of the year awards. And yeah. and so one might say, oh, he's just a specialist. Like, what is he's not worthy of a hall hall of fame? Devin Hester's going to make the hall of fame. Mariano Rivera's in the hall of fame. There are guys who have niche roles in sports that make the hall of fame and i don't see why jamal crawford should be any different he won the award in 2010 with the hawks and then 14 and 16 with the clippers and he's he's like benjamin button he 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 like gets better as he ages and his his crossover is iconic that little like slight hezzy oh gotcha and then he's got the most four-point plays in nba history by a wide margin He's at 54. James Harden's creeping up, and James Harden will probably surpass him someday just at the rate he's shooting the threes. But he's at 54. Harden's at 34. And the next closest guy is J.J. Redick with 25. So you're obviously you're not going to make the Hall of Fame based on a quirky statistic like that, but that just kind of shows you know, the type of game that Crawford has and the style he plays with. And then lastly, like just what he means to Seattle basketball I think can't be understated. He serves as like a mentor to a lot of these guys, Isaiah Thomas, Michael Porter Jr., uh, Zach Levine, even Markel Fultz right now, the struggles he's going through. He's got he's got Jamal Crawford in his corner. So I think Jamal Crawford is a guy who I think, I'm not sure he'll get the recognition he deserves, but I think he's worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know, I think he's really interesting because he's kind of like, you know, the iconic Michael Beasley quote where he called himself the your favorite player's favorite player. It feels like Jamal Crawford is a, is for the guys at the NBA. They they respect him so much and how good he is in a way that media members and fans can't really because we're not obviously there every day at practice and, and see the things that, that he does on the court. But my question for you is, all right, so he makes a Hall of Fame. What team does he go in with? I will answer that question in one minute. Going off what you said on the first part of that, he won teammate of the year last year. Yeah. That's not just for his team. That's in the entire league. So he was recognized across the league as the best teammate in the entire NBA. And while we're not not putting guys in the Hall of Fame just for good character, it certainly doesn't hurt his case, right? No, definitely not. So answering your question – Personally, I loved his Knicks days the most, and I was I was still young in those days. But seeing him torch the garden, he had a, one game where he dropped 50 at MSG. But I think he was most impactful and most relevant with his days as a Clipper. Probably. I, I don't know if I'm fully there with you yet about Crawford in the Hall of Fame. I probably have to dig in more about, you know, how his where he stacks up all the time and a lot of things. But it feels like he's a guy who will be on the ballot for many years and kind of stick around, stick around, stick around, and then he'll he'll get in one year when it's kind of like the culmination of when everyone realizes, oh, wait, he's really, really good. And then and then uh, he'll get in. So so my second guy, this is, this is a little bit of a, me standing on my soapbox and then also wondering – you know, a hypothetical of what this guy could have been if his career started in 2010 and and not when it did in 2003. Kyle Korver is a guy who I think has very, very little chance to make the Hall of Fame, but I think he is an interesting case study going forward of players like him. So he's made one All-Star team. 
He's made 43% of his threes in his career, and he's fourth in NBA history in three-point makes. And in, for the Baseball Hall of Fame, they talk about a lot of guys representing eras and how important eras are in the Baseball Hall of Fame and just in sports in general. Is there a better role player who describes kind of the era that, that we're seeing in the NBA right now of, of the three-point re- revolution than Kyle Korver? Just like how much more valuable would he have been if he was picked in 2011 and he was in his quote-unquote prime right now? Yeah, okay. I've never heard someone try to make the case for Kyle Korver being a Hall of Famer, but you just did a hell of a job. I think I'm not convinced, but I'm close just based on what you said. I mean, teams have, have traded first round picks for him multiple times as he's just gotten older. Imagine if he was 26 years old, what the Hall would have to be to get Kyle Korver. And people forget he did make an all-star game. Yeah, he did. So on that Hawks team where I think they sent four or five guys to the all-star game that one year they won 66 games, but were swept out of the playoffs swiftly by LeBron and the Cavs. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but I do think it is interesting to ponder what his career could have been if he, if a 22-year-old Kyle Korver was inserted in the NBA right now because watching him on the stage that he was on the past couple years, playing in the playoffs, deep into the, into the finals even, some of the shots he makes coming off screens, it's, it's, like, it's jaw-dropping. The, the interesting thing is that he's going to be compared a lot to guys who are coming out of the draft for as long as this era of the, of the three-point revolution continues because he's kind of like what everyone wants with the mid-first round to second-round pick, just a sniper coming off the bench who, as you say, can, can make threes in a variety of ways, just stand still, catch and shoot, coming off screens, like a little bit off the dribble. But I think it's really interesting because... If he somehow finds a way to make it, I don't know if you know if he finds his way on a couple more championship teams and, and he ends up with three rings at the end of his career, you know, then his argument then then the argument in case for him grows if he just has so many championships. But for guys who are playing right now who we consider role players, like if Corver can make it, like if you're a role player with a lot of rings and a lot of career stats, especially for three, it's like you represent this era. So I think that's something to, to, to keep an eye on in the next decade or so to come. My next guy, Rajon Rondo. So he's a four-time All-Star, four-time All-Defense, and has led the NBA in assists three years. I think this is kind of underplayed. Boston's big three, in my opinion, should have been a big four. When they had KG and Ray Allen and Paul Pierce, I think Rajon Rondo was kind of the straw that stirred that drink. He was the facilitator. He was getting everyone involved. And I'm not sure he gets enough credit or the credit that he deserves. And in 2008, I'm not sure they win that finals without Rajon Rondo. And if they don't win that finals, that changes the course of NBA history on two fronts. So hear me out. First one, KG has zero rings. KG is a top 25-ish player, we can say. And he's remembered, he'll be, he would have been remembered in the same light as a Charles Barkley, a John Stockton, a Carl Malone, albeit lesser players than some of those guys, but in the same Reggie Miller discussion of great player, no rings. And that would have sucked for Kevin Garnett and the same thing for Paul Pierce. Ray Allen got one in Miami, so he, he was kind of let off the hook. 
but Rondo's impact on history. And then the, the, on the flip side of that, if the Lakers beat the Celtics in that series, Kobe is sitting at six rings with two three-peats. Th- does that sound familiar? Rondo definitely has his shortcomings. His jumper is is mediocre on his best day. And his demeanor and temperament is repulsive at others. But if guys like Mo Cheeks can make the Hall of Fame, I think I think Rajon Rondo deserves that. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely not anywhere near you on this on this one. But about your your point about the Lakers and the three P. I think part of the reason why they won those next two championships is the the fact that they lost, and you know, I feel like if they won that first one, who knows if they would have been able to repeat or even repeat. And also, it's you know, if you want to talk about NBA history in that series, Kendrick Perkins gets hurt in in Game Six, and and, and that changed the the Celtics' chances of winning that that final. So so maybe they end up with two. And this whole conversation about Rondo is a lot different. I, I, I just have a hard time imagining that for someone so dislikable, uh, he'll be able to to win over a lot of the people who are on the on the fence about him. Especially because you know he keeps going from team to team, and you know last year was kind of like the renaissance of Rondo playing with Davis down in New Orleans. But kind of every team he goes after leaving Boston, it was like, well, what's the problem with this team? And everyone was like, Rondo. So I have a hard time imagining that, that that a Hall of Fame player is is also the one who's who's getting blamed for all these team struggles. Yeah, from from a personality perspective, he's like the antithetical to Jamal Crawford. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess I guess we we can agree to disagree, Dave. It's fine. So who's your next guy? The last guy who I want to talk about is probably the guy who's the closest to the Hall of Fame out of anyone who we've talked about so far. And that is LaMarcus Aldridge. He is a seven-time All-Star. He's averaging 20 points a game for his career with eight rebounds and two assists, shooting 49% from the field in his career. He's made five All-NBA teams, and he's made the second team twice. Currently, he's about approximately 18,000 points. He's 33. So... As long as he doesn't get hurt, he should get, I think, somewhere between twenty-two and 24000 which would put him in a really good company all time. My main, my main question for you is, how can he find a way to win a title that would pretty much ultimately seal his Hall of Fame fate? If he would have stayed in Portland, he would have a decent shot right now. He's a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. He's going to get in. He's... Definitely put up the stats, but from a aesthetics perspective, I've never been like, "Oh, Lamarcus Aldridge is on. Let me turn on the Spurs or let me turn on the Blazers." In fact, it's it's closer to the opposite. Oh, let me turn away from this guy shooting mid range jump shots and being a black hole in the post. I don't find his game very enjoyable, but I do agree that he's effective. And given his resume that you laid out, I think he's. I think he's a definite Hall of Famer. Yeah, it's essentially it, it, you say that because it's almost like that he's the perfect spur if you find him boring to watch. <laughs> true, true. But boring in a in a different way, not because they they beat you so much, but because of just. I agree. the The post up, dribble, dribble, 
turn on fadeaway mid-range jumper is it's you know it gets tiring and it's it's a tough shot to rely on as the defenses get better in the postseason and does less fouls get called and everything but but he's a fantastic player he's a guy who won and done at at texas i think and he's been in the league a long time and and i think if he can just find a way to win a title i don't know how it's going to happen but you know it seems like the war is going to break up after this year and and that seems like his best bet of catching one of those dirk runs and winning the title somehow he obviously isn't as good as Dirk, but getting on a team that kind of comes out of nowhere and has a real team wins the title. It's meant to be that he and DeMar DeRozan are teammates. They have identical games from different positions, which is yep. interesting. To me, LaMarcus Aldridge, I've always kind of thought of him as like a souped-up David West, basically a better version of David West. Interesting. Just a, a pick-and-pop guy, throw it to him in the post. This is prime David West, not David West. I'm chasing rings, riding Steph Curry and Kevin Durant's coattails out in Oakland. But uh-huh. let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk, uh, talk some baseball and then hit up the combine. All right, David. So last week, Bryce Harper, he inked up with the Phillies. 13 years. Wait for it. Wait for it. $330 million. No opt-out. No trade clause. This is a union. This is a marriage between Bryce and the city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. I think it, it's pretty clear that he's, he was going to the highest bidder. It, it, if there was a baseball team in Siberia who offered him more than $330 million, I think he would have went and played baseball there. Kudos to Scott Boris. He, he gets his clients what they ask for and then some. Yeah. So the dude, he stays winning. One of the interesting, just from a financial perspective, uh, one of the interesting things from this deal – I saw the Dodgers offered him four years for $180 million. So that's a $45 million per year average annual salary. So essentially from Philadelphia, he's getting an additional nine years at $150 million. If we're assuming that Bryce Harper's a mercenary and he's out there for the money, which it seemed, I don't know why to believe otherwise, why would he not accept that offer at four for 180 and then try and hit the market again when he's 30. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really interesting point you bring up. Uh, shout out Tom Verducci, Sports Illustrated. He, do, he does great stuff. So, so Verducci wrote a really good article about Harper's process and Boris's process through this free agency process. And what was really interesting is that I disagree with you in the idea that he was a mercenary for for the dollar amount because he probably could have, you know, if he really wanted to do the the quote-unquote LeBron approach, he could have gone to the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Red Sox and say, I'm going to do a one-year deal for 38 to $47 million. And they probably would have signed him. And he would have gone through the whole thing again next 
next offseason. It seemed like what he was going for the most was years. And he was willing to sacrifice the the average annual salary for the long-term security of only one. Because it seems like he only wants to play for one more team and that and that he doesn't want to go through the, the free agency process. And it's, and it's interesting because he's a guy who didn't really go to college. Um, he didn't really get recruited in, in that same way. So it seemed like he only wanted to be recruited once and tie himself down to, to just – to just one place, which is which is really interesting and a really interesting approach because, as you said, the no opt outs, full no trade, he he really can't leave. First of all, shout out Tom Verducci, Seton Hall prep graduate. But I think given Harper's, he's only twenty six. I'm surpri- I'm surprised that he doesn't have an opt out maybe after you know four or five years just to potentially hit the market again. He's he's also a, a young twenty six, and then he turns twenty six after the season's over. So he's going to be twenty six for this upcoming season. Like he's he like he's not twenty six turning twenty seven. He's going to be full twenty six. Which I think is which I think is really interesting because it's a guy who's you sign a huge contract to, and you're going to get him for his full prime. And you've talked about this in, in previous podcasts about just the state of MLB free agency and, and how long it takes for these guys to get signed and. I think it's a really interesting approach that maybe they know something that we don't as players and as agents that say, hey, years are most important because we don't know what free agency is going to be like at the end of a five-year deal. Like It might be really hard for a 31-year-old to get a long-term deal that, and that we don't really understand that. I also don't think it's a coincidence that Giancarlo Stanton signed for 13 for 325 and Bryce Harper signs for 13 for 330. He's just kind of one-upped him checkmate if you will and i think a lot of it just had to do with you know flexing his muscles a little bit and being you know i'm the i'm the alpha in baseball for now i I, let's let's talk about the phillies a little bit they haven't they haven't made the playoffs or finished above 500 since 2011 and they did have that run of a couple world series there but this offseason they added gene segura who he made the all-star game last year as a second baseman and then Andrew McCutcheon, who we're both familiar with with his time with the Yankees last year. And then JT Realmuto as well, who might be the best all-around catcher in baseball. And, and they're returning a team. Aaron Nola, the, their stud pitcher, finished third in the Cy Young. And then they got young guys, Reese Hoskins, Mikhail Franco, uh, Adubel Herrera. Like, this is a solid team. Do you think they're the favorites in the NL East now with the addition of Harper? I think it's really interesting because I want to say yes, but Harper's inconsistency makes me really question if they can, if they're going to win the NL East. Because I think they're probably a playoff team, but I don't know if they're going to win the division. Because Harper, for his career, is a 279 hitter with a 388 on base percentage. So he won Rookie of the Year. At 19 in 2012, he was MVP in 2015. That's kind of like the peak of Harper was his 2015 season. And he was probably going to win MVP again in 2017 until he injured his knee on that freak play where he slipped on, 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 on that wet base. But then when he's not winning MVP, he's, you know, hitting 230 or 240. So you don't really know what Bryce Harper you're going to get. So it makes it hard to predict 
how the Phillies are going to do. Because if we get MVP Bryce Harper, they may win the World Series. But but if we get last year's version of of of, of Harper, they might they might not make the playoffs again. Right. His his variance in terms of play and production is crazy. If you look at his yeah. his peak year where he won he won the MVP versus this past year in the first half of the season where he really struggled. It's it almost seems like it's two different players, and that it, yeah. it took. I kind of went back and forth on this, just thinking over the past couple of weeks when they were both getting down to being signed. I was a little turned off by Manny Machado in the playoffs, just his hustle and then his comments saying they don't they don't pay me to run hard to first base and that stuff. And I'm not sure if that's the guy you want bringing in your locker room, but in terms of yeah. in terms of value added to a team and you know, defensive versatility, defensive value, offensive value, surplus value at a given position. I think I'd rather have Manny Machado than Bryce Harper. See, I still think I want Harper more because I think Harper can play multiple positions in the outfield, which is really important. And I think he can transition to first base as his career goes, develops. And I don't know. I, there's just something about a guy who's so competitive that he's going to get hurt trying to make plays. Like, I want that guy instead of a guy who's making excuses for not hustling. And, you know, I worry about Harper with, the, with durability and more than Machado because Machado, you know, is never going to really, like, you know, sacrifice his, his body in a regular season game in June on a, on a normal pop-up or something. But I think that's what makes Harper so tantalizing as a player and, and, and polarizing is that like people watch him because of what he does and he's just an exciting player and you either love what he does or you hate what he does. Like the way he carries himself and everything, he just carries himself in a way of more just like, I am the man and I think that's really important. That's something Machado doesn't have. And I think when you're building a baseball team, or you like, you want a guy like Harper to build around. Yeah, I think in terms of marketability, he and Aaron Judge are probably the two most marketable superstars in baseball, regardless yeah. of of talent. Yeah. So interesting tidbit from that Verducci article. They SI reported that he's apparently the 13th most marketable athlete in the entire world. And his jersey in the first 24 hours it was for sale sold more jerseys than any individual jersey in the history of the Fanatic site. So now, why isn't he on the Yankees? Because if you think about it, the like why the Yankees sit out of the Harper sweepstakes? He's extremely marketable, sells jerseys, he can play a position of need, like especially because the annual average salary isn't that great. Like, why do you think the Yankees stay out of this so much? Because Giancarlo Stanton's contract is an albatross. First of all, if they could have a redo on that trade, I think they'd take it in a heartbeat. They have a bunch of young players who are about to get paid. Between, so, so we also, we don't really bring up Nolan Arenado. He signed an extension last week. Eight years, two hundred sixty million. I think he might be the most underrated player in baseball. Yeah. Clearly, the two big names tossed around were Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, and both were rumored to be going to the Yankees or potentially going to the Yankees over the past couple of years. 
And when Machado fell through, everyone kind of, at least in Yankee circles, was like, oh, no one Arenado will be coming here next year because his free agency would have hit next year prior to signing that extension. And striking out on all three, the Yankees have a great young nucleus. I think all Yankee fans are excited for what the next five to seven years holds with, I mean, Aaron Judge in his prime, Gary Sanchez, all these other guys. But it does, I'm not going to lie, it kind of stings that we didn't get any of them. (laughs) So for for the Yankees and for Yankee fans, it's, it's kind of who who we think is next, you know. Trout is a is a free agent next year, but but we've kind of missed out and didn't even really bid for you know Kershaw opted in, Machado went obviously went to San Diego, Harper to the Phillies, Arenado read up like all these guys who are supposed to be prime targets for the Yankees, and unless that they somehow pull in Trout, but the idea is that they don't want to spend money. Trout's going to demand even more money than Harper because he is way better than than Harper. That I don't know what to what to make of, of of a Yankee fan, but in terms of going back to Harper's contract, I think it's I think it's just and maybe the reason why the Yankees sat out is I think there's a lot of debate over whether people think he's one of the ten best players in baseball or not, and and I think he he is and he does and if you're one of the ten best, do you do you deserve to get paid the way Harper did? But I'm wondering what what you think if like do you think he's one of the the ten best players? In all of baseball? I think if we're including pitchers, my answer in short would be no. If we're including just position players, I would say he's right around 10-ish. 10 to 15, I would throw him in. And kind of just going off of that question, something that really interests me is what this deal means moving forward because the best player in baseball right now is Mike Trout. That's not even up for debate. He's the best player. This deal makes me curious as to how much a guy like Mike Trout is going to fetch because his contract expires after next season. He, he, he could become a free agent if he doesn't sign an extension with the Angels. And Bryce Harper's introductory news conference in Philadelphia was essentially an open love letter to Mike Trout. So I think there might, there might be something in the works to where Mike Trout winds up in Philadelphia. I mean, he grew up an Eagles fan out in Millville. Are, are you ins- insinuating that there is tampering going on? Yeah, NBA-style tampering taking over Major League Baseball. At, with everything that's going on with the Major League Baseball uh, Players Association, I think the least of their worries might be some tampering because there might be a collusion and then some. But just, just Mike Trout's war this past season wins above replacement for, for the rookies out there. It was higher than that of Bryce Harper's and Manny Machado's combined. So the gap between Mike Trout and everybody else in baseball is steep. It is ridiculous how much better Mike Trout is at baseball than these guys he competes against. Yeah, and it would be really interesting to see if he is able to get $400 million next year if he chooses to hit the open market. And hopefully our our New York Yankees decide to open up the wallets and, and and pay that man. Yeah. So let's let's wrap this up with some NFL combine talk. You tell me you have some pretty intense feelings about what, what took place in Indianapolis this week. Yeah, so yeah, so we're not gonna be talking about any specific prospects as as we'll get into that as more as the draft comes up closer and we'll have 
Coach Sass come back more and Jordan Sears as our as our NFL draft experts. But I just have a problem with, with just the combine in in general, which is or which is I personally Wait, you, you mean you mean the underwear Olympics, right? Yeah, so so first so first point. The last time I checked, Kelly, which was the Super Bowl, which was only a month ago, football players still wear pads and helmets. And why don't they wear pads during the combine? It seems pretty important for the biggest job interview of these guys' lives. They would perform doing what they wearing, what they do for a profession. It'd be like if, it, it would be like a basketball player was like supposed to work out without actually shooting a basketball no it'd be actually a a better analogy i think would be if a basketball player was asked to go through the pre-draft process on the hockey rink underneath the basketball court yeah i mean like why don't these guys wear pads like like all right so i think there's so that the two events that get the most media attention are the 40 yard dash and the bench press so 40 yard dash why don't they wear pads they're heavy, like, oh, all right, you, you ran a 4-3 in your compression shorts. Awesome. I don't, what's that with pads on when you're supposed to be on the field? Point number two, why aren't these guys carrying a, carrying a football? Last time I checked, most of these guys, when they're sprinting on the, on the full field, they're going to have the ball. Like, I want to see what these running backs, how fast they are when they're holding the ball. I don't know how much of a difference it would make, but I feel like it would be a little bit of a difference. I don't put much stock into the combine. In a sense, kind of the way I've recently started to think of it, it's, it's kind of like the SAT in high school. You know, it's like a standardized unit of measurement. Everyone's in the same environment. Everyone's taking the same test. It's a, it's a measurement kind of regardless of your competition, regardless of any extraneous circumstances. Everyone is kind of on the same playing field, and it, it's, a, it's a way for scouts and people of that ilk to evaluate these guys. The thing that bothers me the most is just the confirmation bias. Like yeah. if a guy is good or a guy you have rated highly does well – Oh, I told you so. Like Montez Sweat, he's an athletic beast. And if if a dude doesn't perform well, and you're like, I don't think he's gonna be a good pro. You, oh, you're you're vindicated. You're justified. Yeah. And it, it, oh. it doesn't it doesn't change anyone's opinion. It just confirms the pre-existing beliefs they had it going in. And I think other than the interviews, which are very useful, it's a waste of time because they do learn about these guys and their character and the type of people they are, if they'll fit in the locker room, things, things of that nature. But on the football front, give me a break, man. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of problems with it. It's, I agree with you. There's just so many fundamental issues with the way the combine's set up. It's, it's almost like a glorified way for all these teams that are worth billions and billions of dollars to save money by just having like a conference in Indianapolis in March. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And one more thing, I know we're not talking about individual players, but this drove me absolutely nuts. There was a lot made about Kyler Murray's weight, his size coming coming into the combine. He measured in at 207, Russell Wilson measured in at 203. Whoopty freaking do. You know what Kyler Murray could have done the day before the draft? 
had breakfast. Had breakfast, had about three gallons of water. There, there's an easy scenario where Kyler Murray's actually about 185, 190, and just you know, drank a ton, ate a ton, and not in a way that's going to hinder him moving forward, but in a way that's going to make him look well and increase his stock at the combine. And these guys are taking it like it's gospel, like this kid actually weighs 207. Newsflash. I can see it from here in Jersey. Kyler Murray's not 207 pounds. Yeah, so so there's a couple other things that I, that I want to point out about just fundamental issues I have with just the combine event itself. 40-yard dash. Why do these guys start in, in the sprinter's position you should be starting like in the position you are on the football field. So if you're a wide receiver or a running back and you want to say that you can go out, start literally with your body as if you were lining up outside. Now that you say it, I don't think I've ever seen Odell Beckham or Antonio Brown line up with their hand on the ground like Usain Bolt. Yeah, or, or, or if you're a tight end, like, okay, you can put your hand on the ground, but do it as if like you might actually be blocking someone, not like you're about to go race in the Olympics. And then, and then the last thing is, okay, fine, you want everyone, as you said, it's just a little playing field. Everyone does the whole thing. It's like the SAT. Why do offensive and defensive linemen run the 40-yard dash? I mean, they should only run the, like the 10-yard and the three-cone shuffle. Like Those are the really important events for them because that's as much as, as they're going to run. Moving on, the bench press, the other one with the most media attention. Besides just the fact that, you know, we get a couple great videos of the strength coach there just being an absolute maniac. Like, I don't know if you saw with Ed Oliver just, like, slapping him a bunch of times. Um, If you're going to – shout out David uh, Epstein, who wrote a great book called The Sports Gene, who who talked about this. In a – in a sport where you value wingspan and arm length, guys with super long arms, the bench press is the hardest event for them to do just because it's like physically as you lift the bar, you're lifting it farther than guys with shorter arms. So, and yet you value the higher rep numbers. This just doesn't seem like the best measurement of strength. And then also, okay, so you got some defensive linemen. You're comparing two defensive linemen. You're... You're in the draft room. You're, you're deciding whether to take one, one of these two guys. Is there really a huge difference in the evaluation process between 35 reps and 37 reps? This seems more about, like, do you have to hit, hit a certain baseline number, as you said, with confirmation bias? Just, like, confirming that, you know, this guy has been working out and is doing all the things necessary to be, like, an NFL player. Like, if we draft him, he'll actually, like, keep working out. Like, that just seems like the only point of it. Yeah, I think we're on the same page, but unfortunately, the entire NFL disagrees with us. <laughs> like, I don't need to see or hear Todd McShay talk about how, you know, this this running back did was, was able to do 29 reps of, of the bench press. Like... I want to know, like, if this guy can can run and cut and catch passes. Like, it's great that he can bench press 29 pounds or 29 reps of, of 225. All that means to me is that he's not working out productively. Wow. David heated. I love it. And, and also, can we, can we just point out that it's, it's a sad state of American television in terms of content when this thing is on NFL Network for Three days in a row. Hey, man, they got they got to do something. Baseball hasn't started yet. College basketball and the NBA are running, running the town. They could put. We saw how good the AAF did. They could put freaking 
powder puff football on and people are going to be watching that stuff. The, the, the most entertaining part of the whole combine is when Rich Eisen runs the 40. So I'm, I'm stepping off my, my soapbox until next year. All right. Well, we enjoyed it while it lasted. Before we wrap up, I just want to give a, a huge shout out to my brother's high school basketball team. Friends Seminary, the Owls, had a, had a great season. Fell a little short in the championship to Rye Country Day, but shout out Coach Lever and, and Coach Cap and, and all the guys on, on that team on, a, on just a great season and making all of us Owl fans proud. All right, that'll do it for Episode 7 of the Double Double. Please leave us an email, doubledouble402 at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Take care and make it a great day.